Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, survivalists. Welcome to another episode of the Crux True Survival Stories. I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, and I'm joined by the one, the only, Julie Henningsen. Hey, Casey. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Today, we have an extraordinary tale of true resilience, and this story is also about supporting others who need help in the most dramatic of circumstances. Our focus today is on Robert K., a man whose pursuit of conquering Everest took an unexpected turn when he encountered one of the most treacherous challenges faced by mountaineers, high-altitude pulmonary edema, and also high-altitude cerebral edema. This gripping story is a testament to the power of determination, the bonds formed in the face of adversity, and the unwavering support that can arise from a community of climbers. Descending from the summit of Mount Everest, Robert Kay found himself in a perilous race against the debilitating effects of high altitude in the unforgiving death zone of the world's highest peak. Julie and I have talked about this formidable place in the past. As his body struggled against the thin air, Sherpa guides committed to aiding Kay's descent faced a critical decision. They needed to change his oxygen bottle. However, the bitter cold coupled with the icy conditions conspired to slow down the crucial switch, adding a layer of complexity to an already dire situation. Well, I'm just picturing, I don't know how cold it got up there where you are here in Montana, Casey, but it was 35 below last week. And I'm picturing taking gloves off to try and change an oxygen tank and do anything that requires dexterity without gloves and how challenging that would be in those kind of cold temperatures. Yeah. And you know, it would also be challenging is just getting your hands back in your gloves afterwards. Yes. Every little thing is so much harder when that weather's working against you like that. And you know what my luck is? So last weekend I was up on the mountain with my kids and I was struggling to get my youngest child into his skis, which is a struggle. Sometimes he's like lying on the ground, his legs are like crossed and I had to take my gloves off to help him. And when I went to put them back on, they were full of snow. So that's also, you know, super exciting. Yeah. Feels great. (laughs) Yeah. Before we even got on the chairlift one time. I love how kids just like go limp like a wet noodle when it comes to putting (laughs) on skis or taking off skis. They're just going to let you do all the work. There's no effort (laughs) on their part. I'm so glad that you've had that experience because as Brady got tired, as the day progressed, he kept going off the run into the deeper snow and just falling. 
and then just noodling every time. And I'm like, why am I doing all this work? What in the world? Totally helpless. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And laughing about it too. And I was just fuming. <laughs> I mean, it's funny now, but I was not having it at the time. Yeah. Sounds like we're both enablers of that behavior. <laughs> I know I realized too late that I was. <clears throat> Yeah. Well, also it's like, sometimes you just miss that opportunity to get a snack in them before they have meltdowns. And then it's like, yeah. okay, this is kind of all my fault probably. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, about Robert's descent, he said that he experienced quote, a detached sensation. I didn't feel scared or upset. I know where I'm going to die. And it's right here in a few seconds. Not many people get to know exactly where and when they're going to die. And I do. And that's interesting. It didn't seem terrifying at the time. That is really interesting. I don't know if you remember, but we told a story about another climber on Everest. The story was about Lincoln Hall, but part of his story was another climber that he was climbing with that was descending Everest and suddenly made the statement, I am about to die. And then he just laid down and died. That premonition. Yeah. So Julie, we've discussed this previously in other episodes, but there's some controversy about Mount Everest and I think specifically the death zone, just because so many people have died in that area, just about climbers walking over bodies and walking over people that are alive and struggling, people that have succumbed to the elements, which has led to a lot of negative press for the mountain and the climbing outfits that guide up there. I thought it would be interesting just to recap the death statistics for Everest. So up until January 24, Mount Everest had claimed the lives of 327 individuals since 1922. A study conducted by University of Washington and the University of California, Davis, revealed, again, that the death rate has been 1% since 1990. So I did find on one resource that stated that the first 29 years, 100% death rate on Everest. And George Mallory and Sandy Irvine may have reached the summit, but they never returned. Everest was first ascended by Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary. And since they were able to ascend, and that was in the 50s, the rate has reduced to 50% and has been dropping ever since. Wow, that's an improvement. Right? So 1%, we'll say, which is like your risk of melanoma in a lifetime. Interestingly, it for comparison. Weird to think about. Seem like that much when you put it in that context, but it's a lot for that 1%. Right. I mean, I think it's because it's happening all at one time at a concentrated period in your life where you're knowingly taking on that risk as opposed to just living your life and maybe getting melanoma, you know, it could happen at any point. So I think that that's what makes it feel a little bit like there's more gravity. We always hear about those who die, but apparently there are many stories of heroism and survival that are glossed over. And I think it's just because the sinister death stories are just more memorable and more dramatic. I don't know. But Julie, we're going to give credit where credit is due, at least in part, in telling this story. Great. We're all about the survivors. We love to hear about the survivors. Credit where credit's due. Right. So here's some background on Robert. Robert K. set his sights on Everest at age 15 after reading about it in a book and later traveled to Nepal with his family. He works and runs Star City Motorsports in Nebraska, 
And in his off time, he's climbed all of Colorado's 14,000 foot peaks to prepare for Everest. It was always on his to-do list, climb Everest. Before this story took place, Robert had already attempted to climb Everest three other times. Wow, that's a lot. He's got some tenacity. Determination. Whenever I feel like giving up, I'm going to think about Robert. Man. Yeah, Robert K. (laughs) Yeah. Going for it. Seriously. For numerous years, he had been a frequent visitor to Nepal. He just loved Nepal. Over time, he embraced the role of taking in two Nepali daughters who he raised and educated in the United States. And he's even supported the remainder of that family, the other kids in that family, the biological siblings to get education. So he's got this Nepali family. In the aftermath of the devastating 2015 earthquake, he felt a profound calling to return to Nepal. And this time, his mission was not only personal, but altruistic. He led a trek to the Everest base camp with some of his friends with the goal of raising funds for the victims of the earthquake to just contribute to the rebuilding efforts. So clearly just a really giving person. Yeah, he sounds like an all-around good guy. I know. Building up to his Everest endeavor... Robert ascended numerous peaks in Nepal and conquered other mountains like Denali, Vincent, Aconcagua. And Everest stood as the final conquest to complete his seven summits. I thought it was interesting. Robert doesn't really consider himself a mountaineer, but I feel like his achievements suggest mm. otherwise. I tend to agree. I think he can call himself a mountaineer with that resume. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So anyway, he had a large degree of mountaineering experience. It's not like he just randomly signed up and just forked over the cash and went to climb Everest. Right. Which some people do. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. But for the critics that are out there of these operations, he stands, you know, it's contrary to that, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. He had also used critical thinking in the past when he decided to turn around and not push onto the summit with his Sherpa guide in 2010, because there was a big storm. And in a blog post about his decision, Robert stated, quote, a lot of people turned around that night and quite a few also summited. There's a very fine line between bravery, perseverance, and foolishness bordering on suicide up there in a storm. So he's got maybe a lot of the characteristics required to be a successful mountaineer as well, which is discriminating, decision-making, level-headedness, kind of not falling into some of those psychological traps that put you in harm's way, making hard choices. Linear thinker, if A, then B, which is probably beneficial in a setting like that. Absolutely. In 2016, he was ready for his fourth attempt. Robert was struggling and he faced significant challenges upon reaching the South Pole after a taxing ascent up the Lhotse face from Camp 3. The South Pole, a windswept plateau positioned at 7,950 meters between Everest and its sister mountain, Lhotse. The fourth highest mountain globally marks a crucial juncture nearly 1,000 meters below the summit. This serves as the launch pad for summit attempts. Most teams typically embark on their ascent the evening of their South Pole arrival, scaling to the heights overnight, so that way they can do most of their descent during the daylight hours. However, when Robert arrived at this point, powerful winds were sweeping across the plateau, and it was forcing them to huddle inside their tents. 
he already had made his decision at that point that he wasn't going to press on. He was going to turn around. It was just too demanding. In an article for NPR, Robert stated, quote, tents were truly blowing away with people holding onto them. One tent lifted off the ground with three people sitting inside it. You're sitting at 26,000 feet, winds the strong and probably well below zero for the temperatures. So a dangerous situation. That paints a picture, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I'm picturing this tent with uh, three people in it flying off the side of a mountain. That would be me. I would be in that tent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's some windy conditions. Uh, Yeah. At that point, he sent a text to his wife, Patty, stating that his climb was over and he had never suffered to this extent in the past. But in the morning, the clouds had cleared, the sun was shining, and he felt a restored sense of energy. Yeah, he did. (laughs) Yeah, he did. He was still alive. He was still alive. You know, of course, he'd hydrated. He had something to eat. He probably had a decent night's sleep because I'm sure he was exhausted. So all of those things contributed and he was feeling like, hey, I think I can do this now. This is feeling doable. And he changed his mind. He texted his wife and said, actually, I'm going to go for it. They left at 8 p.m. again so they could make it up and then head down in the daylight. And it took them 12 hours to get from where they were to the top, which remember was a thousand meters. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. That's snail's pace. Right. That morning, May 19th, his dream was achieved when he stood on the summit of Everest. He'd been feeling strong and the climb was pretty straightforward. On this morning, one of the things that increased the potential for danger was the slow ascent and descent. And the reason it was slow was because there was a high volume of climbers on that day. Traffic jam, congestion. Yeah. I can't imagine how frustrating that would be. You'd have to have the most amount of patience at that point. Yeah. He estimated it took an additional five hours due to traffic. And apparently that day, over 200 people reached the summit probably all within Mm. a matter of minutes, because remember, most people are climbing during the night so they can descend during the day. So all of the summit arrivals are going to be roughly around the same time. Yeah. On reaching the summit in his dream, he said, quote, all these different emotions. I was elated, super happy to be up there. It is spectacularly beautiful. I got a little bit teary eyed. It is something I've been working on for almost 40 years and a little bit of like a loss. You know, I've reached this goal that I've had for so long. It's almost like you've lost something. And interestingly, I'm sure this emotion is heightened by all of the pre- preparation, planning, working you do to get to the highest point on earth, just to descend after 20 minutes, you know, like so many things building up to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There might be a sense of it being anticlimactic in the most true sense of the word. (laughs) Right. He shook hands with his group, hugged, took pictures. It was pretty snug because at the time there were 50 other people on the summit and it's not very large. About an hour into the descent, he was moving slowly because of the number of other climbers. Kay started to feel a little breathless. To go a distance that should have taken 20 to 30 minutes took him two hours. So he was recognizing he was in trouble, especially when he took time to rest and breathe. You just sit there and take some deep breaths. And he realized there was no improvement in his condition at all. Mm, Yeah, that's a scary sign. Right. 
He said, quote, words can't describe how tired you feel. You want to do one thing. You want to sit down and go to sleep. And yet from all the other things you've read, your experience and the lessons you've learned from others' mistakes, if you sit down and rest for a long time, you're never going to get up again. Especially if you should fall asleep, you'll never wake up. Julie, we have discussed this a lot in the past. The descent is where there's an increased risk of life and limb. And this is when Robert began to have symptoms of high altitude pulmonary edema. We have discussed this on the podcast before, but just a quick overview. I've asked Julie to participate in this discussion. As we delve into the challenges faced by mountaineers on Everest, one perilous adversary that often rears its head is high altitude pulmonary edema, commonly known as HAPE or HAPE. This life-threatening condition is a consequence of ascending to high altitudes, and it brings with it a set of unique challenges that can turn a climb into a battle for survival. So to understand HAPE, let's break it down. At high altitudes, the air pressure decreases, which leads to a reduction in the amount of oxygen available to breathe with every breath that you take. And as climbers ascend Everest, they enter what's known as the death zone, which you mentioned. The death zone is where altitudes exceed about 8,000 meters or 26,247 feet. It's in this zone that the risk of HAPE significantly rises. And it's called the death zone because staying there for any length of time is not compatible with life. You can't oxygenate well enough at that altitude. HAPE is a type of edema, which as you know, Julie and I know what this is, for those non-medical people out there, it's a fluid accumulation that occurs in this instance in the lungs. As the body struggles to adapt to the reduced oxygen levels, blood vessels in the lungs constrict which causes fluid to leak into the air sacs. And this buildup of fluid makes breathing increasingly difficult and can just lead to a cascade of severe respiratory distress. So really recognizing the symptoms of HAPE is crucial for both the climbers and the support teams. The earliest sign is what you mentioned, Casey, shortness of breath at rest. It's normal to be short of breath when you're climbing, but when you sit down and take a rest, take a break, have a snack, drink some water, and you're still short of breath, that's not normal. Early signs also include persistent coughing, increased heart rate as your body's trying to maximize distribution of oxygenated blood, which is a limited resource at this point. And as things worsen, often climbers will experience extreme fatigue, like what you were talking about, just wanting to lay down and go to sleep. The skin might turn a little bluish, particularly the lips. We call that cyanosis due to lack of good oxygenated blood flow to the skin. And eventually a late stage sign, which is very worrisome, is the production of what we call pink frothy sputum, which is just coughing up sputum basically that's blood tinged. So preventing HAPE involves acclimatization, which of course all of these climbers had done gradual exposure to high altitudes to allow the body to adjust to the reduction of oxygen. Climbers are also advised to stay hydrated, be aware of their physical condition. In the event that HAPE onsets, you have to descend to lower altitudes. That's the primary treatment. Uh, supplemental oxygen, and certainly there are medications that can be administered to alleviate symptoms, but you got to get down. Another condition that can be deadly if not recognized, which is very similar, but swelling in another area is high altitude cerebral edema, which is a severe and life-threatening condition that can occur at high altitudes. 
it involves swelling and fluid accumulation in the brain. In the context of high altitude mountaineering, including climbs like Everest, haste like HAPE is the result of prolonged exposure to low oxygen levels at high elevations. And the way that this happens is the reduced oxygen leads to dilation of the blood vessels in the brain, causing an increase in blood flow and cerebral swelling. So similarly to a severe head injury where you have bleeding in the brain and you have increased pressure in the brain, you can get a severe headache, confusion, or altered mental state, difficulty thinking clearly or making decisions, ataxia, which is really treacherous when you're up on a mountain like Everest because you get lack of coordination or unsteady walking. You might have nausea and vomiting, blurred or double vision, and in really extreme cases, loss of consciousness. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I'll add one of the more dangerous things about HACE, high altitude cerebral edema, which is statistically less common than HAPE, um, is that it can include hallucinations. And sometimes the person experiencing it may not realize that what they're seeing or feeling or encountering is not reality. Which is what we heard in the story of Lincoln Hall, right? Where he was taking off That's his right. coat and thinking that it was a death cloak, right? Right. Yeah, I taught a wilderness medicine course years ago, and one of my participants told this story of climbing, I think, Aconcagua, if my memory is correct. And she passed about 17, 18,000 feet and suddenly noticed that there was a miniature Bruce Willis sitting <laughs> on her shoulder, just hanging out, chatting with her. She made it to the summit. Bruce went with her all the way up. And she descended, she had a successful climb other than it wasn't until she retrospectively after the climb was over realized that maybe Bruce Willis wasn't actually on her shoulder. You know who I know who would be on your shoulder, Julie, in this instance, if you were having this hallucination? <laughs> oh yeah, you know. Marky Mark. <laughs> right? Mark yes, that's what I thought. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Who would be on your shoulder, Casey? I don't know. I'm going to have to give that some thought. I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Who would you pick if you were just going to make a guess? Oh, gosh. I have no idea. And I should know. That's embarrassing. I should know. I guess you don't know me as well as you thought. <laughs> I know. Oh, gosh. <laughs> just teasing. I don't have an answer either, so <laughs> I'm not going to be offended. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe that's why I don't know. <laughs> so as is the case for high altitude pulmonary edema, descending to lower altitudes is the primary and most effective treatment for allowing the body to receive more oxygen and alleviate the symptoms of high altitude cerebral edema. I was thinking that there must be this time frame, especially during an Everest attempt, if you begin having these symptoms where you might have the cognition to think, oh, I'm fine. It's worth pushing on just because you have a, such a strong desire to keep going but I'd imagine that that would be short-lived once your symptoms progress. What do you think, Julie? Well, I think it's more, um, you're more likely to pay attention to those symptoms with hate perhaps, because it's one thing to not be able to breathe. Like that feels 
so uncomfortable that pretty quickly your motivation will be to do anything you can to get a breath of oxygen versus symptoms of haste, which may be confusion or loss of balance. You know, it's just harder to think straight in that setting and make good decisions. Right. Yeah. I just think, gosh, especially on the descent when you've already made it all the way up there. What a horrible thing. I said before that haste is statistically less common. What what I'm meant to say is haste is responsible for much fewer deaths than hape is. Hape is the most common cause of high altitude illness related death. You got to have oxygen. That's number one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could also think that you potentially could have confusion and disorientation just from lack of oxygen to the brain without even having cerebral edema. Swelling. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're just not on your A game. Right. So as you can imagine, clearly these conditions would make descending insanely difficult, if not almost impossible. It's almost like the wind is suddenly taken out of your sails, metaphorically. Like everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, not fine. Robert was in serious trouble. He was having tremendous difficulty to make it down, but he persisted Below the South Summit, he was trying to keep himself going and motivated by taking 30 steps and then breaking, but he could only make it for about 10 to 20. And at this point, below the balcony, which is about 500 meters above the South Pole, his legs just gave up. And this is what he said about it. Quote, at some point, not far below the balcony, I was getting too tired to stand, so I decided to glissade down. This is a fancy climber's term for slide on your butt. He was with two Sherpas. Songye and Padang Ongshu. And he worked his way down. They were supporting him every step of the way. In order to help Robert, his group would clip and unclip him from the rope, move his safety line across the anchor and reclip it for him, just to save him the energy from having to bend over and stand up multiple times, which you might not think that that really adds a lot, but I would imagine that, I mean, how many times do you have to do that? Quite a few. Yeah. And at that point, Every cell in your body is fighting for that oxygen. Your brain, your lungs, your heart, your vital organs are taking top priority. So there's really nothing left for muscle movement or skin to keep you warm. There's just not enough. So I can imagine, you know, bending over something simple like that, or clipping or unclipping as easy as it is with a normal oxygen saturation, it could feel near impossible in that setting. There are anchors every 100 to 200 feet the whole way, so that's quite a bit of clipping and unclipping as well. Additionally, his Sherpas carried and dragged him to safer elevation at 26,000 feet at the highest camp area. They finally reached the bottom of the slope, and just meters from the tents, Robert collapsed. His Sherpas went on to get help at this point because they couldn't move him. Other team members rushed to him to give aid giving hot tea, food, and oxygen. But when they went to swap his oxygen bottle, Robert collapsed on his side and began spasming in the snow. And at that point, Robert thought that he was about to die. In the NPR article that I previously mentioned, Robert said, quote, when they unhooked it, it felt like somebody immediately just had pushed my head underwater. I started spasming and I'm lying on the ground on my side and it hurts so bad. I thought this is it. it sounds terrible. Oh, it sounds awful. Yeah. I can't imagine that feeling. Suffocation. Oh, there's probably nothing worse. Yeah. 
six Sherpas had to lift him up and drag him the rest of the way to camp and get him into a tent. And then two of his teammates, Laura and Ben, who just returned from the summit, they were able to administer some dexamethasone via injection. And dexamethasone is a corticosteroid medication that can be used to help alleviate the symptoms of high altitude cerebral and pulmonary edema at high altitudes. So in the context of high altitude pulmonary edema, dexamethasone is believed to work by reducing inflammation in the lungs. HAPE also involves, again, the accumulation of fluid, and that might help counteract this by decreasing inflammation and stabilizing cell membranes, which can contribute to the improved lung function and just reducing fluid leakage at that point. For high altitude cerebral edema, dexamethasone helps reduce brain swelling. And so at this point, Robert, although he didn't know it, but he was suffering from both haste and HAPE. And of course, dexamethasone is really a crucial component in treating these things, especially when people are having severe symptoms. But like mentioned before, you just have to really get down to a lower altitude. Like that is what you have to do. Yeah. The dexamethasone is kind of a time buyer, I think, but we say there's three treatments for HAPE and haste. One, descend to get lower, three, go to the beach. <laughs> I like it. That's hilarious. You know what I was just thinking, Julie, is about how steroids basically solve all medical problems. I know. <laughs> God, they're awful, but they fix just about anything right? temporarily. I know. <laughs> what would we do without them? It'd be interesting to know how many steroid prescriptions I've given in various forms, probably thousands. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay, to the masses, no, we don't use it for everything, but it is useful in a lot of different circumstances. After the injection, Robert's condition improved somewhat. And at that point, he felt like he was going to make it off the mountain. He felt a restored sense of confidence. But despite the improvement, the night was going to be a long one. And I had never considered this before, Julie, but with high altitude pulmonary edema, a person is not able to lie flat because you could die of drowning due to the physiological effects on lung function, which makes total sense. I just never thought about it. Yeah. The position of comfort is for sure having your lungs upright. So sitting upright, you can't talk them into laying flat. Same with like an asthma attack or COPD flare. It's very difficult to breathe comfortably or oxygenate as well in that laying position. Right. And that's mainly due to impaired gas exchange in that position. It's pretty complicated, but that's the Reader's Digest version of why it's harder. His friends stayed with him through the night, each with their own tasks. So Laura administered the medications. Her husband, Ben, was communicating with a base camp and a third team member, Barbara, was melting snow for drinking water. They also had to adjust his sitting position so he couldn't actually lie down. They pretty much anchored him in an upright position. And the following day, despite fair weather, Robert faced a grueling descent down the Lotzi face to camp two which spanned over 12 hours. His song maintained a close lead while Ben trailed just two steps behind Robert, selflessly sacrificing his own speed to assist Robert's descent. At the base of the Lotzi face, six Sherpas from another team arrived with a sled, aiming to tow Robert the remaining mile across the flat expanse of the Western CWM to Camp 2. This effort involved lowering him into a crevasse twice, lifting him back up on the other side. Can you imagine? 
Oh, wow. That seems hard to believe that that was like the path of least resistance, but I guess so. Extreme, right? Yes, extreme. He was obviously belted in well to that sled. Yeah. The journey from the summit at 8,848 meters to Camp 2 at 6,400 meters required the collaboration efforts of about 20 individuals. Mm, That's a big team. Yeah. Another helping hand awaited. The next morning at 6.15, New Zealand pilot Jason Lang skillfully flew his helicopter into the thin air of the Western CWM to airlift Robert. They transported him to a hospital in Kathmandu. Amazing. I bet by the time he landed in Kathmandu, he was like a new person. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure he was. Probably not completely, but that's probably all it took was just getting down a little bit lower, a lot lower. Oh, yeah. I thought this was interesting. Not long ago, flying a helicopter at 6,400 meters was considered extremely risky. But Jason is an experienced pilot. He dealt with such challenges before. Jason had bravely transported bodies out of the Kumba Icefall after a tragic 2014 avalanche. Upon reaching Kathmandu, Robert received his diagnosis, which, like I mentioned before, high-altitude pulmonary edema, high-altitude cerebral edema, and he also had pneumonia, which, can you imagine? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. All that fluid in your lungs, if that sticks around, hangs around long enough down there, it's going to get infected. Right. What I was kind of thinking was, could he have had pneumonia before? Because he was feeling so terrible the day before. Probably not. Probably makes more sense going the other direction. But pneumonia is, I don't know. If we were going to give pneumonia a personality characteristic, what would it be? Insidious? Insidious. Yeah. It might be like a little fox, kind of sneaky. But way uglier than a fox, though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Foxes are cute. So Robert spent a week in the hospital. He thankfully made a full recovery. And meanwhile, Ben... His friend, Ben, who had walked two steps behind him the whole way, he made it back to base camp on his own, but he discovered he had serious frostbite in all the toes of his right foot. He ended up being evacuated by helicopter and was admitted to the same hospital where Robert was being treated. In an article by Mark Horrell, a climber and writer, Robert was quoted saying, there's always a lot of derogatory writing about commercial expeditions, the quality of their clients and support and the natural competition that business competitors are forced to engage in. I can honestly say from my close-up perspective that I saw nothing but the highest professionalism from everyone involved. People forgot their business alliances when they saw me in trouble and just stood up and did whatever they could do to help. I'm so proud to be associated with all of those people. The bottom line for me in this story is that I have been given a second chance in life due to the bravery, skills, hard work, and sacrifice of others. I feel like a soldier returning from battle after his buddies carried him through a hail of bullets. And then he goes on thanking all of these individuals that helped him off the mountain. He said, there is no doubt in my mind that I would be dead on the side of the mountain that had my attention for 39 years. All of that to say that there is some humanity left in the world, Julie. Yeah. What an incredible testimonial. That just is wonderful to hear. That's not the theme of the media that we get very often from these big mountain climbs. Exactly. And I will post all of those names that he gave thanks to in the show notes. And I have to say, Robert K., you are an incredible human and a hero that you do things from the kindness of your heart with the spirit of giving. And you deserve to be rescued off that mountain. Right, Julie? 
Yeah, absolutely. 100%. You get, you get what you give Robert and you got what you gave. Yep. That was karma in the most uplifting of ways. I mean, not to say that no one else deserves to be rescued from Everest, but what a great person to be rescued. Yeah. Agreed. Robert, you know, of course he raised the two children from Nepal that he adopted. He has also raised money for an organization called Tiny Hands, which works to fight trafficking of thousands of women and children from Nepal to India every year. So I think just a good all around guy. He is done with Everest though. And rightly so. Yeah. Well, yeah, he, he accomplished his goal. He can check it off the list and he, he did it. He went out with a bang on that one. Right. I'd be curious to ask him, what is his next Everest? You know, like, what do you, yes. Yeah. Where do you go from there? He's probably working towards some other big goal, maybe another 40 year goal. Yeah. Maybe we can get him on the podcast sometime and we can ask him that question. Yeah. Reach out, Robert. As we reach the end of this episode of the Crux True Survival Stories, we extend our heartfelt appreciation to all of our listeners. This journey through Robert K's Everest descent has unfolded as a testament to courage, collaboration, and the unyielding human spirit, showcasing the highs and lows of high altitude mountaineering. Our sincere thanks to you, our dedicated audience, for sharing this adventure with us. Your support fuels our passion for storytelling. To stay connected and receive updates on upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram at The Crux Podcast. Your engagement is invaluable and we can't wait to bring you more stories in the future. Also, if you have suggestions on episode topics or themes, please let us know. Until our next exploration, stay curious, stay resilient, and continue embracing the spirit of adventure. Adventure is out there. My kids were just watching up recently, so I had to throw that in there. Have a wonderful remainder of your week.